Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining, back stateside. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined as always by Courtney Nguyen. Welcome back to America, Courtney. I don't know about you, Ben, but I am personally waving a flag right now. Is it a German flag? It's not a German flag. It is an American flag. I'm very excited to be home, I have to say. I haven't had a chance to go to sleep at home yet, so I'm waiting on that. Um, that will occur in a few hours. But, yeah, no, it was just a long... Long, long, long trip, as you know. Uh, ben and I were both overseas in Europe and the UK for about almost nine weeks, I think. Nine, nine about eight and a half weeks. Yeah, so. eight and a half weeks. As glorious as that can sound, and I'm not complaining at all because it was fun and whatever, but it does wear on you and it is exhausting to be constantly like feeling like you're foraging for food every day and like life is just not as easy as it is at home and plus you're working all the time and I got sick towards the end of it so I'm just happy to be home had a nice home-cooked meal got to play with my dogs got to zone out on the couch got to do some surfing on Amazon (laughs) I'm stoked it was pretty exciting I mean especially even the couch thing because none of the places I was staying I think for the whole eight weeks never really had like a couch That's a very good point. I mean, it's a really, I don't know, because I know that it can sound really dumb. Like if either you or I complain like, oh, no, we were in Rome and then we were in Paris and then we were in London and we were covering tennis and talking to tennis players and whatever. And it sounds like a really stupid thing to complain about. But like those little creature comforts that help you just kind of stay sane throughout the day, you kind of lose them and it's fine to lose them for like a month. But to lose them for over two months, it was a lot. And and unfortunately, Ben saw a very ugly side of me towards the end of it. <laughs> and I know the, it, too. I, I, well, we, we agree there. Um, <laughs> I, I would say the other thing that sort of made it wearing is that we didn't really have a day off, per se. I mean, I don't think there was a single day during, maybe there were only one or two during like the 60 days or so I was gone, that I didn't either go to a tournament site or get on a plane or a train to a different city. Or at least that, I mean, taking it a little bit further, I mean, yeah, I think that that's definitely true. But even also just there wasn't a night that I went to sleep where I went to sleep as opposed to I fell asleep. Like I was constantly like something was on my mind and I was jamming on this, this or that. Or like I fell asleep in the middle of doing something that I needed to get done. Or I just kind of went to sleep a bit anxious and then when I woke up, I was obviously just as anxious because I was like, oh, crap, what happened? What time is it? Where do I have to be? What time do I have to be there? That sort of thing. And and I just, I need like just 24 hours, 48 hours of just not thinking about tennis for a little bit. And then I think I'll be in good stead for the rest of the, the year. But yeah, it was, it was a sputtery touch and go there, Ben, <laughs> at the end. <laughs> But we made it. We're we made here it. back on, on home soil. Uh, the next frontier for each of us is pretty local uh, and, and not for several weeks, thankfully. I think you next go to Stanford and I go to Washington, which is only I'm like a mile from where I live, uh, the tournament there. So pretty, pretty restful little time here coming up. And I think for the tennis calendar, too, this is a bit of a lull in the schedule these first three weeks or so after Wimbledon uh, when like, World Team Tennis happens and not a whole lot of important tour events are happening. 
obviously a very big event just finished, so we should get to that. Uh, the Wimbledon finals were won by Novak Djokovic and Petra Kvitova. Before we get to them individually, Courtney, what, what are your takeaways from this tournament as a whole, from these two weeks, especially, I guess, the last week, since we did a show midweek as right. well? Um, I think that, that no, I mean, with Novak and Petra winning, I think this was kind of a, it was a feel-good tournament insofar as you, you had these very two kind of parallel stories tracking, which is two players who everyone knows that talent-wise, work ethic-wise, they're great, but just mentally couldn't really pull things together when it really mattered. And, and you obviously knew that with Novak having lost his last three slam finals, and he admitted it himself that he had left basically some trophies on the table over the last two years, which I don't think any of us could really argue with. No. And then with Kvitova, who, who's in, really underperformed at the majors, um, in, um, underperformed across the board, but, but really at the majors, really underperformed uh, over the last two years. So Two words. Looks like a comb comb. Exactly. You know This year. This year. Wimbledon champion the Wimbledon champion lost to Looks like a comb comb in Australia this year. That's a thing that happened in twenty fourteen. It is. It is. And so, you know, you kinda had all these questions. And so even though, you know, Pick Kavitova was in the bottom half of the draw and that draw, I think if people remember in our last episode, I was like, Oh, whoever comes out of that half, who can even call it? Because it was like the weak half of the draw that no, just had a bunch of scattered names, but no one you can count on. You know, we didn't even pick her to, I didn't pick her to come out of that bottom half. And, you know, obviously Novak, number one seed, and, and a lot of people were, including myself, were picking against him. So there was a lot of kind of stuff going into it. And so in a lot of ways, it was a feel-good story that they both won. The way that they did it, really showing their mental resilience, showing their skill as well. I think both of them played really some of their best tennis in the finals against quality opposition. So that was all great. All that being said, I couldn't shake the nagging feeling as I was flying home yesterday that are we going to remember this Wimbledon? That was the question that was kind of in my head. And and I don't know if we will. So much of whether we remember this tournament and it's a memorable tournament really depends on Novak and Petra mm -hmm. and what they do going forward. In other words, if this is the springboard for Novak flipping the script and go and being like going, you know, winning the U.S. Open, winning the Aussie and winning the French. I mean, he really could win the calendar slam from here. Uh, not calendar slam, the the non-calendar slam from here on out. Totally. You know what I mean? And so if that happens and we can trace it back to this win, that's awesome. If this, you know, sets the, uh, the Kvitova back on course. <laughs> the Kvitova, I like the Kvitova, that. Um, back on course and then she kind of has her true north once again and she goes on an absolute tear for the rest of the year that would be great but if those things don't happen I'm a little worried that this slam kind of disappears into the ether it's interesting especially on the women's side for how the springboards could have I think because right now just pure math wise the number of points Serena has at number one is not an insurmountable number because she really has had a pretty mediocre 2014 in terms of accumulating points. She's only number six in the race right now. And so there's going to be an opening. If someone like Petra can make a deep run at the U.S. Open and the lead-ups and also Asia and do decently in Singapore, she could get to number one pretty easily from where she is at number four right now. Same goes for Sharapova, same goes for Halep. There is real estate to be had unless Serena turns around in a big way in the second half of the year. And Serena has points to defend also, defending champ in New York and Canada and Istanbul. Uh, so, and Beijing, and Beijing. 
So a lot of stuff coming up there that Petra could take advantage of. And I agree. I think this tournament just sort of seemed like two very good players adding another notch to their belt when you look at it in terms of big picture views. I mean, it wasn't a time when it felt like a Vavrinka winning the Australian Open and it was a breakthrough. Right. Or that it was someone holding someone else off. I guess you could say a little bit with Bouchard. I mean, this was set up to be Bouchard's real breakthrough and Sharapova 2004 moment. And the script really was laid out for that. It really was. <laughs> like, it really just like, whoa, this is happening kind of way. You know, yeah. like, yeah, I really didn't see that Petra route coming at all. No, I did not either. That was really, really stunning. And in that way, it was sort of, in a 2004 sort of way, it was a route in the final nobody saw coming. It was just the... I have blonde. Blonde ingenue who got routed instead of the yeah. past champ. Yeah, and it's like, I think I said on the preview episode for Wimbledon that I picked the 2012 winners to win again and I think final redux as well and instead we got the 2011 winners so we just kind of dialed it back a little bit more nothing new but definitely for Petra if she can get this on track and let's be clear I mean everyone knows about the Del Petra phenomenon (laughs) Kvitova isn't somebody to be consistent but if she can at least get more that way I think it's great for the game because the level of tennis she showed in that final was absolutely jaw-dropping. I mean, it was 55 minutes and a route. I don't think it was any less entertaining than the men's final, just because of how triumphant a performance it was. It really was, like, one of the best efforts I've ever seen by anybody on a tennis court. No, without a doubt. And, and Ben, I think you were probably sitting out on center court. I was in the press room live-blogging during the match. And I didn't have time to get out to center court. It was over before <laughs> was I so even got there. Quick, though, that's true. But like, I don't know if you heard, like, I mean, I would just be like typing furiously and there would just be cackles in the press center because in, of just kind of like reporters laughing at some of the shot making going on, not mocking, obviously, but just in complete and utter awe. And the um, defense, the defense, defense. was funny. <laughs> The defense, the deep Petra Kvit, like, here's the thing that really bugs me is because I know that ESPN didn't air Petra's, um, the full Petra press conference. They aired Genie's, but they didn't air Petra's after the final. Okay. And it really bummed me out because Petra's final press conference was really, really funny. It was. And, um, but you don't get that from the Wimbledon clip of her press conference because they cut out the questions and they also cut out some of the funnier exchanges between her and some of the reporters. They just put kind of together a very dry clip, I thought. But but yeah, you lose a lot in the transcript as well. But like kind of her just basically entirely owning the fact that like I was in the zone. I shocked myself. I hit that backhand. And I was like, what? I mean, and I've never run like that in my life. <laughs> exactly. She's like, oh, that's really good. Holy crap. You know, like that was kind of amazing. And it was it was very, very endearing to see, you know, because it was really contrasted with in a lot of ways what had been leading up to that match you know a lot of press room swagger that we saw from Jeannie and understandably so she didn't drop a set she was playing great tennis and was talking kind of a big game and so like yeah for Petra to kind of be like after winning the final six three six love in 55 minutes being like yeah and I ran down and I hit this shot and I shocked myself and I had no idea that I could do that and you know that sort of stuff was pretty I don't know I just remember thinking like wow it's it's it just further adds to kind of the contrasts between the personalities in the final. Because because Bush, it's hard to imagine Bouchard being ever... Wowed by himself. Admitting surprise that yeah. she did something well. Because Bouchard's whole thing is like, no, I expect this of myself. I work really hard. And this is, I get my rewards for that. And that's, and, that's just yeah. another way of going about it. But, yeah. you know, it's, it's definitely... Uh, 
yeah, I mean, we all, yeah, we all know the Del Petra phenomenon, much like Juan Del P- Martin Del Potro. It's almost like Petra is sometimes embarrassed by kind of the things that she can do, or she hasn't really understood what she can do on a tennis court yet, or all these sorts of things. And, and the ambition is there in terms of saying like, yeah, I'd like to win slams, but, but it doesn't really resonate when you're in a room with her. She doesn't mm-hmm. have a champion swagger um, in any way, shape or form. And, um, but you know, she's got two, two majors now. And as John said, she, uh, she's a hall of famer and, and that's kind of a crazy thing to get your head around. Wow. Yeah. I hadn't put it that way before. Yeah. But two, two slams, two, two Wimbledons, you know, only active player to have more than one Wimbledon what Serena and Venus. That's true. I mean, I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I'm not sure she's a hall of fame, hundred percent lock, but she's definitely would have to do utterly nothing in her the rest of her career to not get it. Yeah. So, so yeah. And, she, and she's still so young. And she could wind up being the best of that sort of late 80s, early 90s generation, or the very late 80s, I guess, in terms of the WTA, which is a little bit what? of a... What do you mean late 80s? I mean, sorry, people like born after, between Sharapova and, I don't know, Bouchard. People, it, really only like in conversation with Wozniacki, Azarenka, Kvitova, Redwanska. Right. Of that group, she could wind up being the best of them. Yeah, no, she and she should be. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, like, I mean, she now has the same number of majors as Vika, right? Or did Vika win three? She won Vika has two. Vika has yeah. two. Yeah. So Vika has two Aussies. She's got two Wimbledons. Vika's been number one. She obviously has had the better career as a rank. Yeah, completely. Um, but in terms of upside, you would still consider that the Kvitova stock is trading fairly low. Yeah, that's fair. Right? I mean, if I were to put it in those terms. But, but yeah, but I mean, the only other point that I would make about, about the final or kind of what happened with the tournament is that it, it did feel like it was um, a bit of an inside tennis Wimbledon. Okay. I, or I felt like, you know, because I think there's no way to look at it the night before, like Friday night, and say, if you think about the health of tennis, and if you think about what that means, which means ad money, which means people paying attention, which means growing new stars and, you know, having the popular players win... I would have to say that the majority of the press room was probably rooting for a Roger Federer, Eugenie Bouchard champions dinner photograph. 100%. They were very ready for that to be on the compendium. Exactly. And and we all understand why. I don't think that we need to explain it. I'm not saying yeah. it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that that's just fact. And so it felt like with Novak and Petra winning that it was like, you know, the alternative. It was the, it was the inside tennis. But actually, if you strip away all these 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 issues of marketing and and all the business side of tennis and all that and you just talk about pure tennis terms this was a win for kind of pure tennis yeah i don't know it, but it felt like something that was going to be celebrated more internally than on a broader scale pure tennis meaning what like skill i mean at the end of the day like like petra kvitova at her best is a better tennis player than eugenie bouchard That's true. And, and, and the way yeah. that she plays tennis is and may i, I I'm not going to say this is definitively, but but in my opinion, is a more aesthetically pleasing way of tennis playing tennis than Eugenie. I'm not talking about game plan, whatever, but stroke production, whatever. When Jeannie does what she does, everybody wows because it's like, wow, I can't believe she's able to do that. And, and how effective it is. And how effective it is. Yeah, but Pet- it's not like it's one of those things where I don't think many people go out. People who are pure tennis purists go out to watch Jeannie practice, you know. Exactly. There, there's nothing about the stroke production itself that's like magical. Right. Exactly. Or nice to yeah. look at. But I but I'll I'll stand there and I'll watch Petra hit a tennis ball. 
like yeah. all day. So in terms of pure tennis and the things that kind of Petra Kvitova can do, I mean, Miguel Morales for Forbes wrote a really great piece, obviously saying that like Kvitova won Wimbledon, but Bouchard is going to win, you know, the marketing sweepstakes and kind of broke it down and, and kind of lamented the fact that this was this was going to be true because Petra does play and is the type of champion that you do want to kind of be able to market in tennis. Very humble, soft-spoken, you know, great kind of story of being, you know, basically from a extremely small town, virtually a village in the Czech Republic, you know, and, and, and becoming a two-time Wimbledon champion and uh, playing a, t a brand of tennis and, a, and a, a style of tennis that's just kind of infused by the tennis gods, you know, kind of like one of those like Nuke Lelouch from Bull Durham, like God just <laughs> down and touched your left arm and gave you that forehand um, and that serve. And it's your responsibility to go do something with it, Petra, like, you know, that sort of thing. And Agreed. then, yeah, and then with, with Novak as well, just kind of, you know, he's worked so hard and he's always right there. He deserved it in a lot of ways. And, and it, it's good for the health of the game for his confidence to be up. So yeah, I don't know. It felt inside yeah. tennis, but that's just my opinion. I mean, Novak has played too well over the last 18 months to have no slams to show for it. That's basically how I would sum up his side of it. Totally. But I want to I want to get to Bouchard before we sort of move more on to the men's final. It was, a, like we said, a breakout tournament for Bouchard. There was a lot of press attention paid to her, which delved into off-court a little bit, but not as much as I expected it to, honestly, in terms of how the British media presented her. I thought it was ridiculous. There was a picture of Jeannie and Laura Robson on the front page of the Daily Mail on the day of the women's <laughs> final. I mean, good for Laura on some level, getting herself on the cover of the newspapers in a tournament she doesn't play on based the final. On quotes, and, based on quotes that she never gave. And, right. Uh, yeah. But yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So what did what do you make of the whole sort of genie phenomenon of the sort of trying to, to make her a thing that's going on? And obviously, I think the on-court results back it up. I mean, she's won more slam matches than anybody this year. So it's hard to say that she hasn't earned the attention in legitimate ways, but it definitely seems like we're sort of on the verge, on the precipice of just falling into a complete genie freefall forever. Yeah, I mean, I I, I really loved Kamakshi Tandon had a tweet maybe late in the second week of like, if Grigor Dimitrov and Eugenie Bouchard are supposed to be the next Roger and Maria, like that's backed up by their court assignment and their press room assignments. Because mm -hmm. they were constantly in the main press room, they were getting center court, court one, you know, and, and uh, you you know, you kind of looked at it, and you're like, I see what you're doing there, like, all England club, okay. Yeah, especially Grigor, honestly, even more than Jeannie. Yeah. I mean, Grigor was never off-center or won the entire tournament. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. remarkable. But yeah, no, but but getting back with Jeannie, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it was inevitable. I mean, she's, she's just kind of perfect for, especially the for Britain and, and the British tabloids and Princess Eugenie and named after royals and all these sorts of things. And, and, you know, the, the press room, even after the final, the press room was way more packed for Jeannie than it was for Petra. And Petra That's was the one. Yeah. It was virtually standing room only in Jeannie's press conference. There's only a few open seats. And when Petra's, I sat in the front row and then I turned around and I was like, where is everybody? And that's, it wasn't empty, by it any wasn't stretch, but it wasn't as full. Right. It wasn't as full. That's all I'm saying. But you know, it, it's inevitable. So long as her play backs it up, it backs it up. That's all you could really ask for. I don't, I don't, I don't really have an opinion about the free fall. I mean, you just kind of know it's going to happen and good for the WTA for having a new star. And if she gets more fans into it, the only thing that I will say is that because I've read a couple of things where people are like, oh, because obviously with any player, especially a young rising player, I mean, it happened with Sloan. 
It happened with Laura. It happened with Jeannie now. There's going to be a backlash. People aren't ready for, you know, the change and whatever. And, and they find some incident to blow up. Right, there. right. And then, and then obviously there's a backlash to the backlash. So that's just how the internet works these days. And I just think that some of the comments that I've read are like, oh, well, Jeannie's just doing her thing. And it's other people turning her into this objectified professional athlete to whatever. It's the way you, she can't control how people write about her, which I totally agree does happen on some level. But I think that, like, there is maybe a lack of recognition that Bouchard does encourage this. Yeah. Like, I mean, she's the one that brings the stuffed animals. Nobody else is bringing the stuffed animals. Nobody's forcing the stuffed animals on her. She's bringing them to the, the press conference. She's showing up in a kimono. She's, you know, talking about how she's the one that raised the fact that she doesn't want to be friends with anybody and that she's not friends with Laura Robson and all these sorts of things. Like, she's doing it. It's not like yeah. she's like a... She introduced Bieber into her own press conference at one point. Yeah, no one asked about Bieber, and then she compared Bieber to Oprah. <laughs> and I had to leave. <laughs> I was like, no, I cannot anymore. But, yeah, no, so but so long as she backs it up, I mean, it's good stuff. Yeah, Godspeed. Men's final. Like we said with Bouchard, the stage seemed set for Bouchard to win. The stage seemed 20 times more set for Roger Federer to win the fifth set of that men's final. After coming back from 5-2 down in the fourth, saving a match point, about to become the oldest Wimbledon men's champion ever, win his 18th slam, his eighth Wimbledon, four all in the fifth, and suddenly it was over and he lost. And the ending seemed to come really quickly for how long the match was, I thought, anyway. Crowd on center court, which I was actually out there for the last three sets of that match, was literally 99% behind Federer. Probably only about 50 people in the stadium vocally supporting Djokovic. And it didn't happen for Federer. We got a question from one of our listeners. Uh, do we think this was Federer's last chance to win a slam? Or can he do it again in New York? He could. He'd need an even cushier draw than the one that he got here. Uh-huh. And I don't know if that's going to happen. But but I think that the biggest takeaway that I got from from Roger there, because I thought that he played a great match. I thought that, that the level was re- was really strong from him. I think that it became abundantly clear that he needs to catch these guys on an off day, that he can't beat a Novak, and obviously we know his record with with Rafa, but he can't beat a Novak if Novak's playing his top level. And I know that like some people pee like, duh, like obviously he's 30, he's almost 33, like whatever. I'm, like, I'm not saying that it's duh, like I think this is a revelation. I just think that it be, it just became clear that, that he needs some help. And I don't know if it's ever going to be as teed up as well as it was here for him. That's probably fair. I mean, I don't think that his draw... With the exception of Lavrinka getting hurt in that match or not being at full strength, I don't think his draw was that much easier than Djokovic's per se. I mean, Djokovic, I think Dimitrov and Ronich in the semis is kind of a push in terms of who's tougher. And Djokovic had Chilich. I mean, Chilich wasn't necessarily going to be easy. No, he wasn't. But I think Djokovic also made that harder than it needed to be against Chilich. Sure. But I'm just saying, like, I mean, Roger, really, that draw was weak. Who was Roger's fourth round? I'm trying to remember. Robredo. Oh, yeah. That, okay, that's pretty easy. <laughs> okay, here's Roger's path. He beat Lorenzi, first round. Muller, second round. Geraldo, Muller was not easy. Geraldo, was... third round. Robredo, fourth round. Injured Wawrinka in the quarters. Raonic. I mean, compared to Novak, which was Golubev, first round. Stepanik, second round. Simon, third round. Sanga, fourth round. Chilich, quarters. Dimitrov, semis. 
Okay, I think you have a point there. <laughs> okay, thank <Yes>. you. <laughs> Djokovic is a much tougher. But yeah, no, I agree. But I also think that Roger... I mean, this was Roger's best last chance, I think we can say. I mean, I don't, obviously we don't know what draw is going to implode on itself in the future. But And he came within two games of winning this title. Right. So, yeah, it seemed like a really, really good last late chance for him. And he, should, and he didn't I mean, get it. He had such yeah. so many opportunities in that fifth set. I mean, it didn't look like they were big opportunities, but at least for me, like, live blogging it, because I have to get into, like, the minutia of everything, like, at least two games, I'm pretty sure three games, he had love 15, and he duffed the next point. He had the next point, and he duffed it, either missing a second serve return or dumping a volley or drilling, like, a, a, a drive volley long. Like, he should have had love 30. He should have been able to put Novak under pressure, and he didn't. And that is what was, like, really surprising to me, like, to get that far and win those five straight games and then to not be able to, like, put the pressure on was pretty surprising. I heard some interesting stat that something like, and I'm going to completely butcher this, but this is the gist of the stat. Something like in five-set Wimbledon finals, the person who lo- wins the fourth set has lost all of them for, like, the last 30 years or something. What? Because apparently... Like the, the adrenaline ration- drop? I guess so. Like, you build yourself up so much to win this set, and then you do it, and then you have to sort of restart to win the fifth, I guess, is the logic. In 09 with Roddick, he won the fourth. Uh, Roger won the fourth in 08. Nadal won the fourth in 07. It just kind of goes back. I don't remember the exact year that it cuts off at, but someone told me that. I was like, huh. Anyway, so there you go. The men's tour is getting closer and closer to having a lot of these young guys break through. Dimitrov and Ronich both made the semis this year. I don't think either played particularly great in their semi. I think I think especially the Dimitrov-Djokovic match was kind of weird and messy in a lot of ways. But the young guys do seem to be getting closer and closer. Both of them are now in the top 10. Both of them are in pretty good position to qualify for the World Tour Finals. How long is it, do you think, Courtney, before one of these guys, and I'll even throw in some of the rest of the pack, like a Nick Kyrgios, even if you want to put him in this conversation, until one of them breaks through to become a slam winner. I mean, is it we're talking by 2015? Can this happen? Um, no, I'll say 2016. Okay. I think we throw Kyrgios out of that discussion right now. I think that if you include Kyrgios in the discussion, it's just complete recency bias and being impressed okay. by what he did. But you know, I'll add Nishikori then. I guess. Sure, she can throw in a Nishikori, but I was most impressed out of all of them with Dimitrov. I think that his consistency over the course of the season has been really, I mean, it's really impressed me and just the physicality and being able to get through those those matches, you know, a guy who used to cramp and um, not be able to get through like two best of five matches um, to make the semifinals was great. And I thought, And I thought that he actually did play well against Novak. I mean, he didn't play a great first set, but was able to kind of get things back um, on his terms and just got nipped in those tiebreakers, but um, experience will fix that. So he's my guy that is is going to be of that new set, the one that wins first. I just okay. don't think that you can win majors these days on any surface without being able to break. So sorry, Milos, for now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Grigor's the, the, the first to break through, but, you know, this goes back to what I think we've been discussing ever since, like, Indian Wells, I guess, because Roger always said it, the best I thought which is yeah like you know these these young guys are are winning and they're winning more and they're breaking through but at the end of the day the big four are the ones holding the trophies and in the final more often than not exactly you know so you know you you, Stan and Del Potro are the only two that have been able to break through 
you know, Ferrer at the Masters, if you want to count that. But otherwise, it, it's it's big four all the way. And it's hard to ignore that. I mean, are, is there change happening? Sure. But that's going to happen because time passes and people get older. But it's not because this young group is just like, oh, we're going to make our surge and beat everybody now. I don't think so. Yeah, probably not. And we'll see. I mean, time will happen. I still think the sort of Ronich rule of saying that Ronich will win a slam because they will keep being four slams a year and someone will have to win one of them. I, I still believe in that concept completely. I do, too. I just didn't think that he was going to be the first one. No, that's fair. That's definitely fair. Yeah, so we'll see. Uh, definitely, with Kyrgios especially, he was good to have around. Uh, some of the other young guys, Vesely had a pretty decent tournament. He made third round. Uh, there's other people coming up uh, that are doing things that are noteworthy. And it's good to get some new names in this ATP conversation. Because for so long, not only was it just the big four, but it was also all the same people falling just short all the time. It was always Burdich. It was always Songa. It was always Ferrer. You know, and now we're at least getting some other names into the late mix of things. And it's, it's a start. So I'll take it. Sure. One of the most talked about stories of the second week of Wimbledon which was a doubles match that took place on the second Tuesday of the tournament and only lasted three games. Uh, Serena Williams uh, took court for her doubles with, against the team of Barwa and... Vugale, and they and Serena appeared disoriented from the beginning, uh, had trouble tracking the ball during warm-ups, couldn't do basic hand-eye coordination of catching ball from the ball kids and things like that. Visited by the doctor, uh, then tried to play three games, the third of which was a disastrous service game in which she came nowhere near getting a single serve in the court. Then she finally stopped uh, a few hour, an hour or so later. Uh, the reason was given as a viral illness but it didn't do much to stop the rumors or discussions or theories or whatever you want to call it about that match. Courtney, we were both watching that live, and I think it was, we both said, something along the lines of it was one of the strangest things we've ever seen on a tennis court. Uh, what, what do you make of that and the, fall, the aftermath and what comes next for Serena, I guess, in the wake of that weird denouement to her tournament? I think the biggest concern right now is just, you know, I think a lot of us are just wondering if she's okay. Yeah. You know, I think that that's the primary concern. And unfortunately, you know, all that we have is, is the official statement of a viral infection and or a viral illness. And that's what is said. I mean, I just I just remember getting just a bunch of tweets that day of people being like, you know, lay off. She doesn't have to answer anybody. You're right. She doesn't have to answer anybody. She has no duty to say anything. But why should I mean, if if we were supposed to take at face value every single press release we got, we wouldn't be necessarily doing our jobs either. We would be transcriptionists, um, not journalists. Exactly. Um, we would be PR people. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so I don't know what happened out there. I was surprised more. I mean, obviously, by, by kind of how Serena was behave, behaving simply because it was worrisome. But I was, I was really taken aback by kind of Venus's non-reaction through the whole thing. Yeah. I think that was really... Something that I, I, when I went back and queued up the tape, I watched a couple of times and she just kind of was acting like there was nothing wrong. And every sisterly dynamic is different. I just know that if I, I was playing a sport with my sister and 
my kid's sister and she was doing that, I, I would have probably looked a heck of a lot more worried. Yeah. But, you know, what can you do? What can you say? I mean, the, yeah, it's a tough one to talk about because we have what the official reason is. We also have all of the, the, the speculation and uh, questions. I mean, honestly, the Serena thing dominated conversation in the press room for four days. Yeah afterwards and i know ben was getting calls i was getting calls to go on radio talk shows and like whatever and everybody's like the first thing they wanted to know was like what's the story on it becomes a very difficult thing to talk about because because it's irresponsible to say anything more if you don't have confirmation of anything else right so i don't know it's tough but that's what that's what we're basically both sort of saying i think is that we can't be confident saying anything right so it's just hard and that's what we have to say is we have to just reiterate we don't know very few people know the true story or you know the true causes of what happened on some level Serena might not be sure I mean she made references when she was talking to Andy Roddick over text which she sort of recounted parts of on his radio show about getting tests done and stuff so we'll see what what goes on and what comes out of it and we may never get the full story on this and that's something this might just wind up being a weird blip in the, in the radar for for her and she's still committed to play Bastad, which I think is insane. I know she, I realize she's getting a lot of money there, but she'll be on court relatively soon again. I think that's next week that tournament. Yep. So uh, we'll see how how she does and what make what comes of it. And you'll be with her in Stanford, assuming she plays that one as well. Assuming, yeah. Assuming. So be interested to hear what she has to say about the whole thing and the reaction to it. Um, but yeah, I was just when people were people were criticizing, and I think understandably so, uh, Pam Shriver, Chris Everett for being on ESPN and sort of hypothesizing and making guesses during the match. But I was also thinking at the same time, I'm very glad that I was not live on air trying yeah. to explain what I was seeing to viewers because that's a good point. How would, what would you, what do you say in that situation? Right. I just, no, I don't totally, know. No, that's the thing is, is that, yeah, I mean, I didn't have a microphone. We don't ha- usually have microphones in front of us in, a, in, yeah. a, in the press room and, and things are, thrown around and ideas are discussed and and you're just kind of just bouncing ideas off of people you know like what do you think of this and what do you think of that and you go into the locker room you ask around and everybody else has their theories and you hear different things from the camp and you know and the theories were all over the place on this they really were they were yeah all over the place so um we'll see it'll be interesting but yeah it was definitely memorable and definitely one of the strangest things because they have been in this non-consequential match too so it's not like there was any real on-court fallout from what happened. Well, the interesting thing that I believe was in um, John Wertheim's like 50 parting thoughts from Wimbledon, which is a great post that is always a must-read. And I say that not because I get a paycheck no, it's really Sports good. Illustrated, um, but his parting thoughts are always money. But because um, there's all these always little nuggets in there that you're like, oh, I did not know that, or like whatever. Anyways, but he was saying that the whole Serena incident has actually may have brought basically the next like a kind of change, player, yeah. yeah a rule change or a player council meeting to discuss whether or not an umpire can stop a match if a player is 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 unwell or a doctor or someone or a doctor yeah. right so so that i think would be a very very interesting development in tennis but yeah i, was I think, I think that, that it would be a good one i was talking about that with somebody and they said it was interesting they would change the rule but it's not like this happens very often. It's not like we're in boxing where there's like woozy players who need to be have their corner thrown the towel often. I mean, I can't True. think of another situation except for maybe like 
an occasional Azarenka having say, a concussion or being woozy on court. But Azarenka being woozy on court, Lena bonking her head. I mean, obviously they went through the the head concussion tests or whatever, but assume that those concussion tests went the other way. Right now, the doctor can't stop it. They can yeah. just advise. That's a, that's all they can do. So that situation, Vashik Pospisil going down and with like being completely hallucinating uh, in the heat in Australia. I mean, these are the things oh, Dancevic, that we asked. Dancevic, yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry, right, it was right. Dancevic, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the things that we ask these players to do, you know, in, in to be, you know, in, in tip-top condition, I think that there does need to be some sort of like, no, you can't go out there sort of situation. But the flip side of that is that you're then putting a lot of pressure and stress on the doctors and on the trainers because they're effectively going to cost their player money, mm-hmm. right? If, if, if you call the, if you say, yeah, you can't play, then that player could get pissed and whatever, but that just goes with all the conflict of interest issues that are in tennis. Yeah. Imagine, imagine this happened in singles and let's say in the future, Serena, for whatever reason, has another match similar and somebody says, Serena, you're not fit to play. And suddenly Serena Williams is out of contention at a slam. Right. And that's, so major so major and that's so. the thing and, and that's why in a lot of ways like you you know when you talk about the trainers and the physios and the umpires i mean everybody it's in everybody's best interest to keep the players happy and that's why you see so many like rules kind of bent to like keep players happy so to give the power to like pull the plug on a player's tournament that's that's pretty major that is indeed so hopefully that's a scenario we don't have to see again soon. Hopefully we don't see anything like that again on a tennis court anytime soon because it was scary in a lot of ways to see. I have just no idea what was going on with her and for her not to seem for her not to seem to know what was going on either. Yeah, let's not have that happen again. Tennis is okay without all of that. Thank you guys for listening uh, to our fairly brief show. It's a pretty straightforward end to the slam, we thought, all in all. And so we'll leave you time to reflect on it on your own before we come back to you next week and discuss the upcoming hard courts. Uh, as always, thanks for following us in other non-listening ways. You can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Podcast. You can follow on Twitter uh, at NCR underscore tennis, and you can send us your questions you have for the show to our email address, which is no challenges remaining at gmail.com. That's about it for us, Courtney. Any parting nuggets of wisdom you want to share with our listeners before we send them off bravely into the world? Listen to the new Bon Iver song. It's really, really good. And if you don't like it, I don't like you. There you go. Is it is it outro worthy, this song? I haven't heard it. No, it's actually kind of really noisy. Like, it's hard to explain, but there's this looping... A beat and sound that I think is driving everybody insane and I love Justin Vernon for putting it in there but I love it I think it's really really beautiful but I, I can definitely understand that the song is actually somewhat impenetrable okay so with that song ruled out I think we'll close out with that rap song about Wimbledon that came out this week I'm sure you saw that right I haven't actually seen it oh my gosh corner are you serious yeah I didn't want to deal with it you know how I feel about shitty stuff <laughs> it's it's shitty, but at the same time, it's shitty. So, but it's also really earnest and uses all these women's tennis references. It's like, you know, something, something jealous like Monica Sellers. And I don't know. I'll let it, let it play us out. It's by this, these two black women who call themselves 
rich white ladies. Well, that's amazing. Officially, this is the best thing ever. <laughs> you should watch I've it. I've totally been turned. You should watch it. It's pretty great. It's enjoyable at the very least, and it'll play us out. Bye, guys. Later. Like Venus and Serena, super cocky with demeanor. Keep it dirty, but I'm clean. And keep it purple, keep it green. Like I'm Billy, Billy Jean King, ho. Tell me how you want to ride a backhand, ho. Either way, I'm scoring, add it up now, ho. I bring fire to the match, bitch. This is my show. Blow. You are so bull, bullshit. We are so win, bull, gun. You are so bull, bullshit. We are so win, bull, gun. Bull, 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 bullshit. Serving an ace, you get contact touched when I blow in your face. I got a killer grip on my hand and my lips. I take a killer hit, couple shots in a sip. I keep class with a dash of the grass in my stash. Bitch, puff, puff, pass, then come down to that. I bring the racket, yes, in a different bracket. It ain't what you got, it's how you pack it. I'm bigger than the US Open, ho. Never falling off, I see you hoping, though. I'm feeling it jealous, like a Monica Sellers. But there's nothing to tell us. We stick a coin in these smellers. Monica Sellers. Monica Sellers.